Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Scott Stabile. Scott's the author of Big Love. His inspirational posts and videos have attracted a huge and devoted social media following, including over 350,000 Facebook fans and counting. A regular contributor to the Huffington Post, he lives in Michigan and conducts personal empowerment workshops around the world. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for having me here, Cheryl. It's a great pleasure that I actually got to meet you because we don't live anywhere near each other, (laughs) but uh, you did do a reading in my area, so um, that's that's a pleasure. I meet some local people that I have on the show, but but typically not people who live far away. So that I know that was such a thrill to see you there. Thank you for coming to that. (laughs) Oh, absolutely! It was it was a pleasure for me, and. I, I also have to say, I think our viewpoints have a lot in common because, uh, uh, you know, this idea of making something out of out of something terrible sometimes runs amok because people want to skip the part where it feels bad. Exactly. Uh, but but I find you to not be in that camp. You you kind of uh, allow for the bad. Yes. Yes, and and more than ever. And only after I learned that not allowing for it wasn't serving my life in any positive way, (laughs) you know, hiding it, burying it, locking it away, pretending it isn't there, numbing myself from it didn't ultimately um, set me forward on any path that uh, that served my life. And so um, just so people have the context for what we're talking about, you know, I, I feel as if. Um, I have the most impact when I actually share what brought me to the ways that I have of thinking um, because it certainly was a very painful process. And for you, uh, I don't compare pains, but you've certainly had some big painful experiences in your life. And I wonder if we could just start with that as the, the, the instigating events you know, that have led here, but... um. Sure. Yeah, I I mean, the two main family um, events were when I was 14, my parents were shot to death in their Detroit fruit market. Um, So that, that was, is by far, you know, the greatest trauma I've endured in my life. And, and then nine years later, my brother, one of, I'm the youngest of seven kids. And my, one of my elder brothers who had been addicted to heroin for his entire adult life um, died. He OD'd on heroin. So uh, another big loss. That one, that one dramatically less shocking in that, you know, we, we were all very aware of my brother's addiction and the ways in which, you know, that was sending him in and out of prison and in and out of smack dens and all of these things. So in some way, I was prepared to hear of his death. We, I, I think 
that my siblings and I all expected it, sadly, at some point, because he wasn't able to to get on top of it, you know. Mm. And with my parents, it was, that doesn't mean it was painless by any means. Of course. You know, but um, with my parents, it was a, a complete shock. And I mean, the first of all, just losing them and then losing them to murder. I mean, it was uh, in every way, uh, horrifying and shocking. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about being real with the pain that we're going through before, before recognizing how it can serve our lives. Um, I, I believe wholeheartedly that the 14 year old version of myself who subconsciously knew or divine intervention helped, you know, to bury that pain. I'm so thankful that that's the path I took for many years because I don't know that I would have been able to handle the sadness and the rage that I ultimately allowed myself to feel in my 20s. I don't know if I could have handled it in my teens. Mm. And I'm grateful that I just locked it away and moved on with my life and was a really good student and, you know, was a popular kid and went to a really good college and once a year, like clockwork almost, had a... uh, a release, a good cry, sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and then locked it away again and moved on with my life. And it wasn't really until my 20s. And also, Cheryl, please interrupt me if I'm going on and on too much at any point. Oh, not at all. Go ahead. (laughs) It wasn't um, until my my early to mid-20s, around 23, when I started to you know, read more books about personal development and spirituality and, and all the, you know, being real with who we are, the dark and the light that I started to recognize that my, you know, locking it away wasn't serving me anymore. It was, it was preventing me from having the depth of connection that I wanted to have with people because I had built such a big secret around my grief and around my experience. And I never wanted to tell, even tell anybody one, that I was an orphan, and certainly not that my parents were murdered, because telling others that was so shocking for them, and it was it created these moments of, for me, just, they were nightmare moments, where the people would receive the information in this horrified way, and I could feel that they had no idea how to process it, and they went to this place of deep pity instantly, and I hated feeling that pity, and it was... So all I did was really hide it, and it was a big, big secret. And I finally, um, finally started to open up about it and cry about it more than once a year, and rage about it, and all these things that I think are a natural part of grief for all of us that I didn't allow for myself. And once I started to allow that for myself, it was like all this energy coming out of me and through me, and I recognized that. I was also much more, um, I was living more honestly, you know, and I was creating the possibility for deeper connections with people in my life because I was presenting my full story instead of just these curated pieces that looked okay for others, Mm. you know. It does make me think about something that, that I try to live by, which is that grief knows what it's doing, Mm. Uh, you know, that that you had to grow into it in some sense, but grief didn't let you entirely bury that once a year did happen. Yes. And once a year needed to happen. I think, you know, it was all, it was always cathartic, at least a release 
And I, I love that what you just said, that grief knows what it's doing, because I really do, when I reflect back on those years as a teen, it's with such gratitude that something in me understood how I was able to handle the grief of, of the loss of my parents. And, um, and I'm thankful for it. And I'm thankful that something in me knew in my 20s that it was time for me to shift and be more available to the energies and the emotions of that sadness and of that rage in a more, in a more present um, and, and present way, you know, and more often. I think it would be a great time for you to, uh, the, the chapter of your book that really is about the loss of your parents, um, just for the listeners, your book is formatted interest, interestingly to me with the first half of the chapter being kind of what happened and yes. how you respond to, to it and the second half being more what you took out of it, what you've learned from it. Uh, which which is an interesting way to go about it, I think. Um, so I wonder if you'd share the part of that chapter that really is about what what you what came out of it for you. Sure, you mean read the piece? The, yeah, the, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the chapter is called Dig, and as you said, with with big love, what I wanted to do was each chapter is a personal essay, so I share a personal story in the first half and the second part I wanted to use as a way to process what I learned and the tools that I used to kind of find my way back to center in hopes that readers, if they choose, might, you know, might apply some of those tools to their lives if it feels right for them to do so. And uh, so this is from Dig. We all have our reasons for burying our pain, but at the core it comes down to fear. Fear of facing the truth of what we've done or endured, the truth of just how dark our darkness is, and the fear that we can't survive it, that it will destroy us. But it won't. Whatever it is, we can survive it. We've already survived it. But what if now is the time to do more than simply survive? What if now is the time to live in a more conscious, deliberate way? What if now is the time to let the healing begin? for real. Healing isn't possible within denial and fear. It's only possible within openness and honesty, within our willingness to look at the truth of our reality, past and present, and to accept it for what it is without letting it define who we are right now. We are not our struggles or our heartbreak. We are not the actions we've taken or the assaults we've endured. Yes, our experiences influence how we grow and who we grow into. But ultimately, who we are is who we decide to be because of and despite everything we've been through. Our power lives in choice. We can choose to face our pain without judgment, without letting us shut us down to our growth, if we decide to. I, I'm uh, recollecting uh, my own uh, coming to grips with that fact <laughs> over time. I guess I still keep coming to grips with it more and more. Yeah. Uh, you know, because in certain acute moments, I didn't have any choice but to, uh, I could resist the pain, but it wasn't going to do a whole lot of good. 
I suppose it's going to be yes. a pain. <laughs> you know, just, I know those moments. <laughs> it would just add insult to injury, I guess. But being in less acute moments and inviting uh, whatever I'm feeling about whatever <laughs> um, sometimes is it takes a different kind of decision. Um, and and yet always is the the best choice for me. I'm I'm prolonging the inevitable when I don't is what it seems to be. Uh, is that your experience also? That's absolutely my experience. I mean, I I write in another chapter. I think about how because I I believe we live in a very addictive society, and I think that so many of us are trying to numb and escape our realities because we don't want to sit in anything that's uncomfortable, and the reality of life is that a lot of it's uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like there are a lot of motion, emotions and experiences that are not comfortable to feel. But we don't, just as you were saying, I found that every time I was escaping, whether it was through drinking or drugs or TV or this or whatever it is, that when I returned, the thing I was escaping from never went anywhere. You know, it's just sitting there waiting, you know, inside of us, you know, affecting our emotions, affecting our physicality in whatever ways it's doing it. And ultimately we are, we are faced with it. And so we can choose to keep numbing compulsively, which is so often why I think many of us um, leads many of us to addiction, or we can recognize that, you know, the pain's not going anywhere and it's okay to feel it and be present with it. And only when we do, do we create a space and an opportunity for it to move through us in different ways and not control us the way that, that I've so often allowed my, my pain to control me by trying to avoid it. It's keeping its reins on me. So I've had the exact experience you're speaking of. Mm. And so somehow... You know, I I know exactly how I learned to do that. Uh, It was um, first in some therapy, but then when my wife was sick, uh, spending a lot of time with Stephen and Andrea Levine, and their work uh, was almost all about how to stay with feelings. (laughs) So, you know, I feel like I got some real heavy-duty training at a time when I actually couldn't avoid the feelings because they were so big, but um, I wondered what helped you to learn how to be with them um, yourself. You know, y- your book obviously is is uh, reaching out to people to help them learn how to do that, but how did you yourself learn it? And we may not be able to finish this question before the break, but I'd like to give it a start. Sure. Well, one thing I would say is, you know, you're talking about those moments of pain and grief that you can't ignore, you know, that it would be a slap in the face because they're so overwhelming that you just go through them. And I, I think that one thing for me was recognizing that when I was going through them and sitting in the sadness that felt all encompassing and like there was no light beyond it, um, was seeing that I survived it every single time. You know, the the things that we're so afraid of, the things that we feel like we can't survive or overcome, that we're forced to face, once we really bring awareness to, to the reality that we did sit in that pain and we did survive it and we did face it and we did come out on the other side, however we came out, just being present in that truth for me was a huge invitation um, to recognize that if I survived that, 
I'm going to be able to survive at anything. And so that's one thing for me is really just I encourage people to look at their lives and look at everything they've overcome, all the struggles they've endured, all the obstacles that they've overcome and and recognize that we are warriors. We are survivors. They have much more strength, every person, than, than we have much more strength than we often give ourselves credit for. And we see that just by acknowledging the lives that we've lived to this point. Um, really quickly, also, like you, I mean, I, I think there's so many books, right? Today, there are so many powerful podcasts and radio shows like this one that offer incredible tools. And, and one thing, just to recognize that we're not alone in our struggle, no matter what we're going through, that I don't know your grief, Cheryl, but I know my own. And we each know grief. And we can connect with each other from that place of knowing. And we can connect with each other through, you know, through empathy, and through Mm -hmm. our humanity. And in doing so, for me, that's been a profound, um, a profound gift. And that has also helped me move forward in my life. That's a good, good place to take a break and then continue afterwards. Uh, listeners, you'll find links to my website, social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you'll find Scott Stabile at www.scottstabile, that's S-T-A-B-I-L-E dot com. Be back soon. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Scott Stabile, author of Big Love. And Scott, before the break, you brought community into the mix, um, which I I feel the importance of so much that uh, 
you know, I, I've spent some time with a man named Francis Weller who who um, has some really uh, good ways of talking about grief from my view. And he says that we're not meant as human beings to endure grief alone. That um, obviously there are alone spaces in grief, uh, times that we need to reflect and go inward, but that without community, we just can't do it. And uh, I, I feel that to be true. I'm with you there a, a thousand percent. I mean, I think that human beings long for connection in general, and perhaps especially so when we're confronted with the darker side of life and the more painful side of life and when we're confronted with our grief. Absolutely. And I've seen um, my experience on my Facebook page where I've there's a, a large community that gathers there these days. Um, anytime I share something on that page that's a bit more vulnerable and, it, you know, maybe it's some a, a deeper insecurity, a deeper fear, a deeper um, chapter in my life that I went through some hardship, the way that the community um, steps in and it, they're, they're always the posts that get the most comments and the most comments of people who are basically saying, I see you, I love you, I feel you, and you are not alone. And there's something so powerful, even though, as you said, there is an element to grief that is entirely solitary. Um, there is such a powerful knowledge when when you know when you just know you're not alone in your struggle even though you're going through whatever you're going through within in a way that is solitary to know that others are there and others are supportive even if it's just their presence because they're so often not the right words that you can say but just knowing that there's a community of people there who are there in some way is uh is powerfully healing well, I, I one of the things I found wonderful about your book too is that you're um, how do I want to put this? You're you're willing to show your own warts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, and they are very warty. <laughs> well, and that's and that's so relieving to the people who hear it, right? That you're not this perfect big love big love guy. Yes. Uh, who's always in love and beatitude and uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you're not an enlightened being as far as you're concerned, you know, although apparently you tried to be at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very happy I let that go, I have to you tell know. you. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a pressure, huh? Yes. <laughs> and willing to talk about, you know, uh, let's see, what can I come up with? Uh, tight underwear and... <laughs> bad tea and whatever it might be, <laughs> um, you know, and, and learning how to care for oneself better and better in those little ways of not wearing the tight underwear, not drinking the bad tea, you know, just little things that we all do every day to ignore ourselves. I found that very disarming and I'm yeah, sure well, that, thank your, you. that your Facebook readers do as well. But I know there's a story about how that came to be. Um, that uh, that made me think again of Francis Weller because he says grief and gratitude are two two sides of a balanced scale. That we have to feel the grief and the gratitude to go through hard stuff. So I know that your your um, page was at one point a happiness page. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I mean, it was when I when I started posting and started the page, it was really I wanted it to be a place of positivity, as I say in the book, like a Pollyanna's paradise, basically. So everything that I was posting and at that time, it was maybe one thing a day and then eventually a couple things a day. But it was all, you know, life is beautiful and you're glorious and the sun's always shining. It was all that energy. And I look, I am I am about that energy, too. That's a part of who I am. And I think that that's important and beautiful. But there was a um, but that's only part of the story, of course, in life. And there was a comment that someone left on one of my posts. And I don't remember the post, but I do remember the comment. And it was. Um, you know, Scott, not everyone's as happy as you are all the time. Some of us are really struggling out here. And it was a really powerful comment. I mean, it was like a knife to my gut, honestly, at the time, um, in part because I felt misunderstood because I was like, wait a minute, I'm not happy all the time. I'm really struggling too. And then also because I felt like my mission with the page to be this source of positivity for this woman it was having the exact opposite effect. You know, she read that whatever I wrote and felt less than, you know, she didn't feel better. She felt worse about herself. And though I know we can't own other people's responses to our words and actions, um, it certainly for me provided a, a nice wake up call. And it was like, well, wait a minute, why would she think that I'm having any struggles in my life? Why would she seem as anything but happy if I haven't given her anything other than this happy side? And that was kind of the catalyst for me making a choice to share more of my insecurities and fear and life story. And once I started doing that, the energy of the page changed profoundly and in a very beautiful way because I feel like we need to be sharing these things with each other. And I think, you know, I want to speak to shame in this arena because I think so mm -hmm. much of the reason we don't share the warts, as you called them, is because we feel ashamed. And I know that so much of the reason I haven't shared myself in my life is because I was ashamed. You know, I was ashamed to share my sexuality growing up gay. And that was my biggest shame. You know, I was ashamed to share my balding head in my early 20s in college. Mm -hmm. So so I stayed yeah. under a baseball cap. You know, I, I'm a, all of these reasons we feel we have to be ashamed of, we hide them, but shame just grows in secrecy. That's how shame lives and functions. And only when we start to be more upfront with those things we're ashamed of, even if it's with one person to begin with, you know, when I would come out to a close friend, it's like an, an elephant of weight lifting from your shoulders. And you start to understand that you will survive sharing those things that you're ashamed of. And you'll also see that you're going to start looking back on those things and, and recognize that it, it's silly. It was silly to be ashamed of them. So I'm always encouraging people to, to speak their shame. You know, just, just try it out and see what kind of a difference that makes in your life. And in my experience, and that's what I tried to do with the book, when we're talking about the warts, they're all things that I've felt ashamed of at some mm -hmm. point in my yeah. life. And I'm speaking and writing so much about shame that I knew with the book, I had to be willing to go there and put, you know, put the warts out there for everyone to see with, 
with hope that it might inspire other people to share their words because we're all warty, you know, and that's and that's totally okay. <laughs> that's a new thing. We're, yeah. that. we're all warty. We're all warty. We need a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking too, uh, in my own life, that's true even when the reaction is bad. For instance, I came out in 1971. Uh, I yeah. was uh, 17, almost 18. And um, my, I, I'm the kind of person, once I, once I come up with something, I kind of have to tell. I don't know, <laughs> a little bit. So I told all my friends, and most of them reacted really badly. Um, how was that for you? But I still didn't regret it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it, it um, freed me. Exactly. So I, I'm always really careful not to set people up to think if they just share, it's all going to go well. <laughs> you know? I think that's an important point. Absolutely. And, and I also don't recommend, recommend look, I'm, all, I'm a big fan of vulnerability and a big fan of sharing, but I don't necessarily recommend that you share the, your vulnerable things that you feel ashamed of with an audience that you don't feel is going to receive them well or might judge you or might try to hijack your experience. I mean, I do believe we can still be selective in our sharing and with the absolutely. people. who are Absolutely. So that's a great point, Cheryl. Yeah, I don't know that I was particularly wise about that process for myself. Um, You know, given the company I kept, I expect expected better reactions. So I I wasn't even (laughs) I wasn't even nervous about it, which is interesting. But um, yeah, I am selective for sure. Um, But that that idea that finding someone. uh, my my younger daughter is not much of a sharer in general, or she's getting more to be, but she was very secretive at a younger age. And uh, my wife suggested to her, um, find one person, pick one person, and tell them everything. Mm-hmm. Um, pick a keeper of your truth. And um, she did that, and it really served her so well. Um, yeah. I believe it. Absolutely. And it was a person who picked her also. They told each other everything, you know, and they still do. Uh, It's been going now for, you know, 10 years or something. um, So picking someone that you really can trust with your truth is a really good first step, huh? Absolutely. And, and, And look, if you're not at that place where you feel like you're ready to share that something, that shameful something, Um, but you're considering it or thinking about it, get a journal and start pouring, pouring that into your journal. Because what I found for me, and this isn't always the case, but when I'm, when I'm working through stuff in writing and processing it through my journal, I, I'm usually awaken to new ideas and new explorations about myself and new ways of looking at things. And so often through writing, I have gotten myself to the place where I'm ready to have a dialogue about something. You know, I've processed it on my own because when we're just, when we're just keeping it in our minds, um, that is, 
that for me hasn't always worked to get me to the place of of the dialogue but writing has really helped me serve it because when I'm writing it's almost like a conversation between two people in a different way and um but I I really encourage people to you know whatever it takes to get you find that one person get your journal whatever but start sharing those things and sharing share the lighter things if that helps you in the first place because shame Shame destroys us. It really, really inhibits us from living the best possible, freest life that we can live. And it impacts us in all areas of our lives. And once we start moving through it and announcing it and recognizing that it doesn't have to control us if we don't let it, um, as you said, there's a powerful freedom that comes with that. Well, the other thing is, one thing I've noticed more and more over time is that shame is pretty weak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. doesn't have it its biggest weapon is um uh, is bad talk. Mhm. Yes. But once it's out, once you've said it, it it begins to lose its power instantly. Um, yeah, pretty much for most people. Yeah. Uh and and that's a really magical thing to discover. And you know, this leads me to um, make a connection. Um, the next thing on my list to talk about is happiness. Um, <laughs> to me, the happiest people I know are the people that have had deep loss and difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that usually involves facing up to shame. But I'm really interested in this in this part of what you say in the book about happiness not being a choice, I think that's really important. So would you read that little part of the book about happiness not being a choice? Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be happy to. You'd be happy to. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right. Um, this is from a chapter called The Happiness Challenge. Happiness is not a choice. Really, it's not. If it were, who would ever choose to be angry or jealous or depressed? Wouldn't we all be choosing happiness all the time? I used to believe that if we focused hard enough on being happy, we would in fact become happy. That all moments offered the possibility of choosing happiness. Of course, I couldn't understand why I found myself unhappy so much of the time. Shouting to the heavens, I choose happiness, didn't seem to be making any difference to all my other emotions. My anger just scoffed. You can scream all you want about happiness, but your mind today and pissed off is on the menu. I'm going to need some time with him after you, my sadness mumbled. Not before we complain about the state of this effed up world, grumbled my disgust. If human beings weren't designed to feel all the emotions, all those emotions wouldn't exist. And that's the thing. Happiness is an emotion, a feeling. We can be choosy about our thoughts, but we can't choose our feelings. We feel how we feel, no matter what we think. Just consider all the times you've tried to think yourself out of feeling something. It doesn't work. If a loved one dies or your partner leaves you, you're not going to be able to think yourself away from feeling sad about it. If you get fired from your job for no good reason, you can't think yourself out of anger or fear. Thoughts and emotions are different animals. If our thoughts are domesticated horses that we can often manipulate, our emotions are wild stallions, free and unpredictable. I, I really like that because that's the dilemma of so many people that I that I sit with in my office. 
is um, some sense that if they're doing everything right, they shouldn't feel how they feel. Yes, and that's and, being hammered. Oh, go yes, ahead. I mean, well, we're getting that message all the time, aren't we? All the time. There are 20,000 memes that say happiness is a choice, you know, with different backgrounds or choose happiness. And we're all led to believe that we can just do it. So we not only feel unhappy when we're not happy, but we feel like failures for not being able to just choose happiness. And that just adds to our misery. It's time for our second break, but we're going to talk more about that after the break. Choosing, you know, <laughs> using happiness as a choice to further beat ourselves up in the head. So, listeners, you can go find us. You can find me at the weatheringgrief.com website or at the Good Grief Host page. And to find Scott Stabile, go to www.scottstabile.com. Back after the break. Step-by-step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now, your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Scott Stabile, and we've been talking about his new book, Big Love. And before the break, Scott, um, we were talking about happiness and the tyranny of happiness. (laughs) I I can't think of a better word. You know, it does feel tyrannical sometimes when I I see people um, thinking that their, their emotions... Not their thoughts, but their emotions are going to... I work in cancer a lot, so this is a huge subject, the positive thinking mm-hmm. um, viewpoint that yes. um, you're kind of at fault that your cancer doesn't go away, get better, be- better, or that it came along at all if you're not thinking positively, i.e. happy. 
it's enraging, honestly, when we when we direct that philosophy at sick people. You know, I and here's the thing: I'm I'm a proponent of positive thinking. Like I believe that there is there's great benefit to at least considering the positives in situations because our minds so naturally go to the negative. We don't have to really put any energy into thinking of everything that's wrong with us and everything that's wrong with the situation. That's very easy. So I think if we're going to give our time, it, you know, it, it serves us to at least consider the positive elements in our life and in situations, but to suggest to people who are sick that they brought their sickness on themselves because of their negative thinking, or to suggest that they can't heal themselves, you know, it's, it's, or to suggest that they can heal themselves if they just think the right thoughts, it's insanity to me. And it's, it doesn't help people. It, it really doesn't help people. And most particularly, um, ironically that that idea my thoughts are making me sick or my thoughts could heal me but they're not is actually a very negative thought right yeah it's true it's true i i think that um our culture is wired to kind of find fault with the person who's experiencing hardship yes i totally Um, agree so how we how we combat, combat that? What you're saying is um, we can't decide to be happy, and yet uh, obviously your your uh, idea living with a wide open heart has brought happiness. You know, it's it's come a lot. You you're you appear to me to be a pretty happy person relative to most of the people yes. in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a good, I'm just a good actor, Cheryl. <laughs> oh, is that it? <laughs> you can tell me more about that later oh, yeah, in this yeah. about it on, your, on air. But, um, well, the, the thing oh, is, it, it. oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. You didn't. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say about happiness, and the, the point of that chapter is that though I don't believe we can choose happiness, I absolutely believe we can make choices in our lives that stand to create more happiness. And that's really what I'm trying to communicate is that if you know, the example I use in the book is that I love to play tennis. So I know that when I play tennis, there's a decent chance I'm creating space for more happiness in my life. And, but that's choosing to play tennis is very different than choosing happiness, which is something I can't do. And what I'm encouraging people is to consider themselves. And this all falls into self-care as well. It's like if you know that taking a walk outside, even for 10 minutes in the outdoors, generally stands to create more happiness in your life, then are you making that choice to take those 10-minute walks? And if not, why not? And if not, okay, you can start right now. Because though we can't choose happiness, we can absolutely make choices that stand to benefit our lives. And by doing so, we are likely to create more happiness in our lives. So we do have power in those choices. I don't want to, I don't want to just throw this message out there that we have no say in creating a better life for ourselves. Because that, I, don't, I don't believe that at all. I believe, Nobody that reads your yeah. book would have to begin to imagine that that's what you're saying. <laughs> I would Nor anyone who listens to my my yeah. show, by the way. Absolutely, we we have we have great power in the choices we make to create more meaning in our life, to create more joy in our life. Absolutely. 
You know, it, it's interesting because Monday nights, uh, I uh, every Monday night, I go to my choir rehearsal. It, I'm in a gospel and spirituals choir. Nice. <clears throat> and um, that music comes out of tremendous hardship. I mean, beyond anything we can quite imagine, um, even when we try to imagine, you know. And it's a response to that to keep this the spirit lively right to <laughs> to keep to find a way back to the essence of of your humanity i would say and i often drag in it's on monday nights so i often drag in i'm tired you know sure. sometimes i'm not even sure if i want to get up off my couch and go but every time at the end i feel good yeah Every single time. Yep. So that's yeah. a good that's a good example in my life of what you're talking about. That I'm I'm choosing to go even when I'm not really feeling like it, because I know that it does something to enliven me. It's a perfect and, example, and and the more the more we make those choices. You know, the more we make choices that reflect self-care, the more aware we become of the choices in our lives that don't. And the more attuned we become to the actions we're taking that actually don't make us feel better or make us feel worse. And it's that's that's one of the beautiful gifts of taking better care of ourselves is we can become more aware of the times when we're not. And we create more opportunities in our lives to make better choices for ourselves. So I love your example. I wish I could hear your choir too. Yeah, we're we're just about to go on tour with the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, but we're going to the South. Uh, so we're not coming to Detroit. Maybe some other time. <laughs> well, please let me know if you ever come to Detroit. I certainly will. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't feel I want to get uh, let you go today without talking about forgiveness. Yes. Because. Um, The, the act of trying to forgive, I don't know if we need to forgive, but the act of trying to forgive is one of those choices that is really painful to invite. Yes. But uh, I felt in your book that you uh, really made it clear how much that's given you. Um the, the act of going forward into, and you have such a, uh, you have a couple of such huge things to apply that to. They're like the 300 pound weights, you yes. know, not yeah. the five pound weights. And I just wondered if you'd be willing to talk about, um, you know, not forgiving, leading to attempts to forgive, leading to some sense of forgiveness uh, in your own experience. Sure. Well, I, I believe in forgiveness. I'm, I'm dedicated to forgiveness. I see that as one of the mandates of love and the hardest one. Um, and I, how I view forgiveness is that if I'm unwilling to forgive something, then I am saying, let's say I'm unwilling to forgive a certain action. I am saying that the darkness that lives in that action is greater than the light that lives in my heart. And I simply don't believe that. So that's how I view forgiveness. I don't believe there's anything greater than the light that lives within our hearts and the potential for love that lives within our hearts. So my 
my most profound experience with forgiveness was forgiving the man who murdered my parents. And it was, you know, we talked, we talked, you, you talked earlier about, um, finding gifts in our, in our grief. And this is truly one of the greatest gifts that, that I've been shown, which was seeing that I could, I could take something that most see as unforgivable and discover that I was able to actually come to a place of forgiveness with it. And the only way I got there was through empathy. And that's that for me, empathy and compassion, that is the path to forgiveness. And, and what it was for me with the man who murdered my parents was ultimately recognizing that no human being who's operating from any sense of self-worth or any sense of love you know, no man who feels seen by the world could ever do what he did, could ever take another person's life. And I couldn't, I don't know all the intricacies of his struggle, but I, I could connect to feeling unseen and I could connect to feeling unloved and unworthy. And I could connect to being so angered by thing, by someone's actions that I wish they had died. You know, I could connect to all of these very human emotions and experiences and feelings and thoughts that I imagined this man had probably experienced in his life. And it was only when I allowed myself to connect to him from that place and to recognize his humanity and to see myself in his humanity that I noticed when I would think about him, it wasn't with the rage and the anger and the vengeance that I would, would think about him with before. It was with, with thoughts of forgiveness. And so it wasn't that I, I chose forgiveness in a moment. I'm dedicated to forgiveness and I believe wholeheartedly that because I believe in it and am dedicated, I will always find forgiveness in my life at some point. Maybe not right away, but at some point. Mm. But, it, but what I realized with him, it was that the more I, I chose to view him through the lens of empathy and compassion, it was like I was touched by forgiveness eventually. And then I could only view him through forgiveness. And I feel like that's, that was, you know, this great gift. And I feel that I have forgiven him. And, and forgiveness doesn't in any way mean you condone someone else's actions. It's not about that at all. Forgiveness really, for me, doesn't really even have anything to do with the other person in some ways. Hmm. It's, you know, I... I think that some people find forgiveness simply because they recognize the pain that it's the pain that it feels for them to live in that toxic state of unforgiveness. And if that's the thing that gets them there, beautiful. Um, you know, I found forgiveness from that place, but also from recognizing the humanity in another human being, you know, so, um, and that's what got me there. But whatever gets you there. Oh, go ahead, please. Well, as I was reading, I was just thinking about um, the tenderness you with which you talked about your brother yeah who i'm sure did some stuff you know out of his addiction uh that didn't sit kindly with other people right you included absolutely um and and how much of um you know the violence and and this and that the the really um, big crimes uh, does come out of addiction for one thing yeah. and comes out of injury and comes yeah. out of an inability to live with life <laughs> yes. uh, in exactly. some way. So I wonder, I wondered as I was reading whether in some way your experience with your brother 
helped you get there as well. You know, possibly. I, but the, the truth is they were happening around the same time. Because this was all, you know, it, with my brother, I was incredibly resentful and incredibly angry at him for a lot of the time I was alive because of the, the trauma his, he created through his addiction for our family and just the, the heartache that he caused. Um, but it was really around, it was all around the same time in my early 20s when I was finally dealing with my sadness around my parents' death and with my rage and finally opening up to, um, you know, reading more books that were talking about love and, and enlightenment and compassion and fear and all these things. It was like this grand opening that it was all going on for me. But yeah, I mean, that that is in part how I came to to forgive my brother as well, you know, through empathy, through, through imagining his experience or trying to. And, um, and so let's, we're running out of time and I would love you to share that little paragraph about brave choices before we go, because it's right in line with what we're talking about. Absolutely. Okay. This is from a chapter called uncle Scott. Um, every time we move forward in our lives and make brave choices, Despite all the disastrous possible outcomes our fear will create, we signal a deep trust, a deep faith in ourselves to handle whatever comes our way. We are, each of us, forced to survive circumstances we would never have consciously chosen for ourselves. We're all dealing with the reality of some of our feared what-ifs. In those realities, however, lives our strength and resilience our ability to handle the unpredictable and sometimes tragic aspects of life. When things don't go as we'd hoped, we're tasked to keep going and to keep hoping. We're challenged to consider with each new courageous choice, all the beautiful what ifs we may be inviting into our lives. So we just keep sending out invitations. I love that last last line because uh, you know, if if we think of a party, right, and you send all these invitations, and then when no one is there at the time the party's supposed to start, yeah, you're going, uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> but then after a while, yes, they <laughs> arrive. here. <laughs> Absolutely, no, it's a great example. Someone very dear to me said she practiced um, self forgiveness for two years before she had any sense of it working <laughs> so well good for her for staying with it you know indeed yeah she's quite a, a resilient sort in that way well scott it's been a joy and a pleasure i hope we can keep in touch i i've really enjoyed our time together me too cheryl thank you so much for having me here and thank you so much for what you're doing you're you're sharing so much love and healing with our world and we need it and thank you as well to find Scott Stabile, you can go to www.scottstabile.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.